thanks for having me here, guys. And don't hold it against me that I'm at Stanford. I'm not like a real graduate of Stanford. I'm just going to school there right now. Um, I kind of like to know a little bit about the room here. How many of you are interested in journalism or going into some kind of communication field? All right, that's good. How about those of you who aren't, but you're just here because it's cool? All right, don't worry. You know, I see a couple of timid hands. I'm not going to hold it against you. I promise. Some people are advertising some PR. Yeah, different, different aspects of communications world. Um, everything I'm going to talk about today, I may say newsrooms, but honestly, like what I really want you guys to take from this is these are applicable to any kind of communication field. When you're actually going to be working with the end user is very much a big part of what I'm talking about here. So that applies to advertising. It applies to PR, to marketing. It also applies to things like product development, very important aspect of that. So even if I lapse into talking about journalism, because I am a journalist, I'm really talking about any kind of aspect of the communication field, uh, because all the same things very much apply. So I'm here to kind of tell you a little bit about my super non-traditional journalism career, or whatever that might be. And uh, I also want to talk to you a bit about how community engagement has shaped not only my work, but how it's shaping the entire industry of journalism and communications at large. Um, so I want to start out just a little bit of getting to know you, some fun facts about me that will help shape this talk so you can sort of know a little bit about my background. Um, for one, I've never been a reporter ever in my life, so that's an aspect of traditional journalism I've not done. I, I did it in college, I guess, but I don't really count that. I've never had a job that someone else had before me. I've always been the first person to have a job or I've made my own jobs, which is very much what I want you guys to kind of take away from this today, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. I've never had a job description that's correct, and I'm going to tell you right now that they're all incorrect. Any job that you ever apply for, the job description is kind of a lie. It's going to be whatever you make it when you get in the door. But also, I've never been bored. I have never had a job that I thought was boring. And I think that that's the best thing you can hope for, no matter what kind of career field that you're going to go into. So how did I get so lucky to never be bored and always have to make my own job? Um, so. This is, uh, this is me in college. I, uh, I knew my journalism career was going to be pretty non-traditional when I was in journalism school at Kent State. Uh, I was working in student media. I learned so much that led to my career. You know, I, I made some enemies, obviously, with my work, especially the fraternities there. Super not big fans of mine. So I had this actually happened more than once. <laughs> oh. Excuse me, I just want to go ahead. Oh. Just want to do one thing. Okay. Um, but also, during that time, and I'm learning how to report, how to edit, how to design pages and planning coverage. Um, we were publishing a daily website. We had like a house-made, terrible content management system to do that. Uh, but I learned a lot about the business there. And also, like, again, this element of things, this honestly made me like fall in love with being a journalist, because you get this immediate response from people to what you're doing. Even if it was negative, it was actually kind of awesome. Um, I didn't really know that I wasn't going to be a reporter until I started my own publication. Um, I and two other women, we started an LGBT issues magazine for Northeast Ohio. And uh, keep in mind, this is in 2003. Uh, there were, we, weren't, we didn't really have competition in the business of being an LGBT magazine in Ohio. Uh, that really wasn't a thing. Um, and really, the process of setting up this publication, of pitching it to funders, uh, hiring the team, like learning how to do the advertising, building a website, which I did in straight HTML, which is like crazy in hindsight. 
Um, but really making that first issue and getting, at, getting all that together like, was an amazing experience for me. And it told me that uh, I really like the operational side of journalism uh, more than I actually like writing stories myself. I liked making other people's work better. And also, I liked solving problems, which ended up really being kind of a line through my whole career. So I, I couldn't be an editor right out the gate. It turns out they don't hire you to do that like as soon as you graduate from college, usually, as cool as that would be. Um, but I started out kind of doing the next best thing. I was a web producer, and it's got a lot of different names now. Sometimes it's a digital producer or a homepage editor uh, at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And essentially, my job was to take like the printed newspaper when they made it at the end of the day and put it onto the internet. And they only updated the website once a day, if you could believe that. Like it was at that particular time. Like it's moved a lot since then. Um, and really before that time, the people that do were doing that job were like IT people. You know, they were very technical people. They didn't really know much about the journalism side of things. Their job was just pushing content onto a website. And um, I was kind of in this first generation of people that were hired as journalists to do this. So then someone who could make editorial decisions like what's the most important story for the online audience? What photos go with this? What other things can we add to it? Um, they really had not done this before. So again, that was a job that no one else had really done. Um, and really that job, it could have been really limiting. Like it was a super not sexy job on paper, literally putting a newspaper all on it. And I worked at crazy bad hours. I worked from 5 p.m. to 3 a.m. And I worked weekends for like four years. <laughs> but uh, that job was an amazing learning opportunity for me because like the sneaky cool thing about producer jobs, and this is in like kind of any place where you're sort of operationally putting things together, is you touch every single part of a newsroom in a way that you wouldn't if you were just coming in as a specialist, as like a reporter or as a photographer. Um, you know, it's a great job to learn how everything works because you're working with editors, you're working with copy editors, photographers, videographers, you're working with IT people who are actually building infrastructures of the site. Um, I pretty much worked with everyone except for like the literal printers at the printing plant. I, I didn't interact with them, but other than that, you're kind of in there with everyone. And I was able to do my work really fast, like faster than my boss kind of thought someone would be able to. So in the time that I wasn't doing my actual job, I started like seeing things and trying to pitch things that we could do. And a lot of that was based on those conversations with other people in the newsroom finding out like what kind of problems they're running into, like how they're solving those problems, like the, the things that they saw that we should be doing that we weren't doing. So I started pitching some interesting new stuff and it was during that time I started the newspaper's first podcast, Daily News, which was literally just like me reading the news into a, into a recorder. I swear it's a lot more interesting of a podcast now. Um, and then I was also starting like audio slideshows, some early video work. Uh, we started the first blogging platform and the first commenting platform on that website. And all of that was just stuff I was sort of doing when I got my job done. And like, that kind of job like, was a real front row seat to see how digital journalism was going to change and how it was going to move. You know, and the, 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 by the time I left a few years later, like, they had started updating their site pretty much around the clock actually doing breaking news on their website. I mean, now you expect that, but at that time that was like mind-blowing for a reporter to have to be told they had to file something before 5 p.m. They were not happy about that at first. But then being able to get into where they're updating, expecting to have news breaking all the time. It was a big change. So a few years later, jumping ahead, I was in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm from Ohio originally, so it kind of worked for me. 
Um, you guys might not know this, but Cincinnati is like kind of the PR and marketing capital of America. Um, that's where Procter Gamble's based, that's where General Electric's based. So like they were really early in pushing social media and kind of a small city. So there were lots and lots of early adopters of social media in Cincinnati because there's so many PR people, there's so many marketing people, and people that were like, had an international profile. And I thought at that time that like, we were really missing an opportunity to bring those people into the work that we were doing. So, again, as kind of a web producer and kind of a utility player role, I wrote up this massive proposal where I had suggested essentially how the Enquirer, the paper I was working for, would work with the local online and social media community. So putting our news alerts and all of our reporters onto Twitter, you know, getting, uh, building a network of community bloggers to contribute to what we were doing, uh, also setting up an, a moderated online forum on our website, which is not really something they'd done before. So I, I had this big plan. I actually like wrote it all up and like dumped it on my editor and publisher's desk like on Christmas Eve when I was working. I'd be like, maybe they'll see this later and come back. And uh, instead of laughing me out of the room, they actually were like, you know what, this is a good idea. Why don't you go do it? And so I became one of the first social media editors in the country working in journalism just because nobody was really doing this at a lot of the big places at that time. And that was a really exciting experience. There was a lot of like really crazy stuff that happened with that. If you ever want to just like doubt your existence, go be a, a moderator on a community news website and see, see the kind of treatment you sometimes have to moderate between people. It's a little nuts. People take sports very seriously, as you probably know. Um, but I tell you about these two first jobs, because I'm hoping that you can see the pattern on this. Um, neither one of these were really glamorous jobs on paper. Like, the job descriptions were not at all what like, I thought I went to college to do. But in both of those situations, by being observant of what the community, of the community was out there, but also what the newsroom needed, I was able to really pitch ways to sort of fill holes that were there. And then I could kind of make the kind of job that I wanted. In all of these cases, I created the kind of job I want. And those internal entrepreneurship type experiences, they really helped shape what was gonna be the rest of my career, because instead of making jobs for myself at existing places, I actually became a part of several startups after that point. And startups at different part of their life cycle. And the thing about like any small place, or, or which you know, includes startups, especially when you're getting out there, uh, just building something for the first time, you can't really afford to be a specialist. Like you need like Swiss Army knife people, like people who have a lot of different tools, they can plug into lots of different places, lots of different skills, um, you kind of need people who can do a little bit of everything. And that's something where, like, yeah, it's great to have someone who can do this one thing really well, but when you're small, everyone has to do everything really well. So when I was at startups, uh, that problem solver capability, like, really, really came in handy. So a few of the things, like, kind of where I came in at different parts of life cycles. So one site is called TBD. It was a local news startup in Washington, D.C. I started there about three months before its launch. And this site was built around community engagement. You know, the, the big dog in town was the Washington Post. Big, big newspaper. They're really, we really wanted to come in and sort of undercut them locally. And a big part of our job, and my job at that time, when we were setting it up, was like literally out in communities, meeting with local bloggers, meeting with community leaders, and finding out like how we could work together to make a news site that we all would want to read, that would be really useful for all of us. 
And from that, like developing like what kinds of stories we would cover, the kinds of beats that were going to be really interesting for them, uh, working with like people on the business side as well in advertising and in marketing to talk about how we can get this out into the community and make money from the community in doing that. Um, I ran our social media accounts as a big part of that job, and it was like really a two-way conversation with a lot of people uh, in local DC. My, my real milestone for myself was when our Twitter account surpassed the followers of the Washington Post local Twitter account. I was like, when? I, like, I thought I could just retire from that, but it turns out that isn't how journalism works, but it was exciting for me at the time. Uh, later on, I went to the Huffington Post, and I went literally from like running a Twitter account with 5,000 followers to running a Twitter account with like a million followers, which is like terrifying. You like make a mistake, like one like typo in a tweet on there, and you get like 600 tweets back telling you that you put a typo in that tweet. It was pretty intimidating. Um, but I joined HuffPost like right after they were acquired by AOL. They were getting a lot of money in, and they were just starting to cover the 2012 election, especially the GOP primaries. And in addition to running social media for politics, I uh, also was running their citizen journalism program, which is off the bus. And if you're not familiar with kind of how that works, essentially I worked with a network of volunteers, contributors, citizen journalists around the country who were going to rallies, local rallies, national rallies, you know, the, the mostly Republican rallies, just because Obama was running for re-election, so there really weren't that, that many uh, newsworthy rallies that we didn't know about on the Democratic side. And essentially, they're there, they're reporting on them, they're taking photos, they're taking videos, stuff that they might not necessarily say in public rallies, they were saying in these rallies, because a lot of them were private events and things like that where these people were, were there as volunteers. So they were contributing into the stories from there working with our national reporters on being able to report that out. So it was an exciting chance to sort of work with the audience in a different way. Now that's a little bit more mainstream, but at that time that was like a weird thing to do. Later I was at this place that actually had like the best name ever. It's called Thunderdome. It was a great newsroom. And um, it was like a core national team of like futility players like me, but also specialists, people who do data science, people who make videos, who are doing uh, product development, and we were working with local newsrooms to help them tell stories better, because they didn't necessarily have these kinds of skills uh, where they were working. So we worked with 100 local newsrooms around the country. And a real highlight of this time um, actually happened like literally like my third day there. I was employee number three at this operation, and then like the third day there, um, a big story happened at one of our newspapers. We were working with the Denver Post, and a gunman opened fire at a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, and it was really late there. Uh, the newspaper's social media editor was on vacation, and like most of their staff was like gone for the night. So they had to be called back in, and then they called us in to help. And one of, a big part of my job was doing lots of communication on Twitter with people who were actually in the theater sharing photos, sharing videos of what was happening, of all them like evacuating and talking about what they'd seen, and really trying to coordinate that in with the professional coverage of the event. So that was really one of my first like big forays into uh, social journalism, which is kind of the rest of my career has been in that. Um, and social journalism, just like the term defined, is um, kind of a hybrid model between professional journalism and citizen journalists and social media contributors. And that was a, one of my first times doing that, but now it's like super mainstream. Every news outlet does that in some fashion. And uh, that particular coverage uh, eventually went on to win the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news. 
So it was a pretty big event for the paper, but also for how stories get told. And later, I really hate this photo, but I just couldn't find a good representative one. Uh, I went to Storyful. And Storyful is, if you guys aren't familiar with it, it's called a social media news agency. And they were one of the first ones that did this. They specialized in social media verification. So exactly that work I did on the Aurora shooting is like what they do all the time. So breaking news stories happen. They're identifying them before they're breaking and before anyone really knows about it yet. They find the people on social media who are sharing photos, they're sharing videos. They just happen to be normal witnesses like anyone else. They would find them, uh, verify that the photos and videos were real, that the people are really there, talk to them about their rights, about how people could use it, and then getting those things into the hands of newsrooms so that they could publish that and put it on the air. So anytime that you've seen like cell phone video from some sort of event on the news or like on a newspaper website or going around on social media from a news site, it came from a regular person. And this is usually the kind of means by like how that got there. And now like that's a really mainstream thing that every newsroom does. But it was kind of a weird thing at the time. So that's why there was a whole business built around that. And uh, this company, They'd been started in 2010, they're based in Ireland, and like I came in just after they were bought by News Corp, and they, uh, they were essentially like, got a lot of money all of a sudden, and they really needed someone to run the newsroom and make it a little bit more professional. So it was like a team of utility players, but there weren't like a lot of processes, there weren't like a lot of uh, structure to it. I mean, there was like no HR, there was no, uh, not any real like operations there, so building a lot of that out. So I was the first editor they ever hired, and really like the, the growth there during that time was kind of insane, because we would be, uh, we, I started when it was like 25 employees, and by the time I left there was like 200 employees. It was really crazy growth, four different continents by the time I was done, six different time zones, employees everywhere, lots of like weird late night phone calls, that kind of thing. Um, but also a thing that kind of happened while I was there was expanding to sort of talk more about disinformation. So out there finding people who were intentionally planning false stories in social media, exposing those, making sure the media doesn't fall for them. And that originally had started as almost like the stuff we were throwing out when we were verifying stuff, because we only cared about the stuff that was true for a long time. But then people got a lot more interested I wonder why, I think it was around late 2016 that suddenly everybody was really interested in uh, the disinformation that we were finding. And that became a big part of the work we were doing, finding people who were planting stories, finding the networks of people who were intentionally sharing uh, fake news. So all of this is to sort of show like this weird trajectory. Cause I mean, I moved up technically in these jobs. Like if you like read my LinkedIn, it would be like, Yes, this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. But really growth like that, and, and really growth anywhere anymore, is not really like a ladder. It's definitely more of a jungle gym. You're like going over this way, and it's like slightly parallel, but a little bit different. And then maybe move up this way, and then maybe go down for a second, and then over here. Like it's not like a straight line anymore. It's not like you're in a factory where you're the entry level laborer, you're a ground manager, floor manager, you know, manager of this, manager of this. Like it, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, it's really rare that like that kind of like old timey progression just doesn't really exist anymore. And it was a great experience because I mean you're getting more knowledge of the business all the time, uh, acquiring new skills, like solving new problems. And really, 
one of the most important things, is like building more relationships with people across the industry and outside the industry too, in the community. Uh, I worked really closely with the tech platforms. You know, that kind of work makes it so that you, know, you really know a lot more about how everything fits together. And I think a, a big thread of my story, you might have noted, is a focus on working with and for the audience. You know, community engagement, you know, active journalism uh, out, out in the field is a huge part of that. So that's either like on the ground and on social media. And again, that is the thing that is really huge across the communication industry. That's also what led me to Stanford. So at Stanford, um, I was, I'm at the JSK Fellowship, which is a four mid-career journalist to go take a break a year away from the industry, take whatever classes that we want, uh, but also to take on a project. And I was focusing on consumers of disinformation because at Storyful, we'd focus a lot on the people who were creating the disinformation, the systems that were spreading it. And my interest was starting to kind of get to be like, well, why would anyone believe this stuff in the first place? Like, what would... Because if they wouldn't believe it, like none of this other part would really even be happening. So, and another thing is I really, really hated the assumptions that journalists in the field, and like even in technology, anytime we talk about disinformation, they would say this kind of stuff about them. Like, you know, these people are morons, they're completely unhelpable, they don't care. Um, you know, like why are we even bothering with these people? And I was really kind of annoyed by that because it's like, well, I feel like there's a lot more to the story. So these past 10 months, I've been out talking to these people. Uh, they don't actually look like emojis, but this is much easier than using their photographs, because <laughs> I'm not allowed to do that. But um, I've actually been in depth, like going to their homes, I'm sitting in their living rooms, I'm sitting on their back porches, we're talking for hours, lots of phone calls, and essentially like we're getting into like what they believe about lots of different things. Um, their connections to their communities, you know, what, they, what they think about the news, why they believe the news that they believe, and in the reasons they might have not to. And the thing that I, that was, that I found in all of this is that every single one of them, they had really good reasons for the choices that they made. They're not the choices I would make or the choices you might make, but they had really good reasons themselves for whether it was sharing a fake news story or believing it or like living a whole life within what we would consider to be a disinformation community. Uh, and the thing that's important too is all these people were well-educated, they're very smart people, and they all actually really care a lot. Like they aren't casually sharing something or casually just out there like throwing around information they don't know about. They themselves believe that they are, they're doing the right thing. So a few trends I found in doing these conversations with people. Um, one, and this was a big one, in every conversation that we had, even though for those people who trust the media, really are not very uh, comfortable with how much power we have. You know, on, a, on a, a day's notice, you know, we could be out there deciding who the heroes are for today, who the villains are for today, and they're really afraid of that. They're really afraid of the fact that like, they might be the villain sometime, or someone like them, or people who have the same beliefs that they have. Uh, and they've seen it happen, and they've had it happen to themselves and to their communities where you know, they see these shame mobs happening on Twitter. They're seeing news stories written about people like them, and it's framed really negatively. So that power is really scary, especially if you don't know how it gets wielded behind the scenes. They also don't think that we necessarily care that much about what's happening on the ground in local communities. Uh, some of that's because local news is really suffering and going away in a lot of these places, but also, 
when there is a big national story that happens, everyone around the country, all these journalists from New York and California and everywhere else are parachuting in. They are there, they're like disrupting their whole lives for two, three days, and then they go away and they never hear about it again. They're like, how do we know that you actually care about any of this? You know, we don't believe that you really care. Much like me, and I'm sure all of you guys, there's tons and tons of news out there. There's just so much information. There's so many websites, so many radio stations, like television, social media, all of it is just feeding information in. And not everybody necessarily has the time or the know-how to really think like, is this real, is this not real? But also, a big factor for them is, is this really news or is this someone's opinion? And this was especially a problem with television and cable news. Like a lot of people that are like, I don't feel like I know like, that this is, this is what's really being reported, that this is actually just what this person thinks. And like that fuzzy line really leads to a lot of distrust on their part. And like that factor is made even worse by like aggregators, so sites that write about other sites' stories, and social media itself, because so often the sources are buried somewhere in there. You don't know where it originally came from. Because sometimes they'll link to it, Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they say we got this information from this place, but sometimes they don't. And so even if they do want to find out where the news came from, it can be really hard. And uh, again, something that I very much identified with, everybody's kind of freaked out by how addicted they are to technology. You know, like when you get on your phone and you say, it's only gonna, I'm only going like, to answer this one email, or I'm only going like, to text my friend this one thing, and then like an hour later you're still on your phone. You just don't even know what happened at the time. That's really scary to people who aren't as familiar with technology as you are, or even as I am. Like that's, that addiction is very frightening, and it makes you just really question what you're doing all the time. And finally, like I found out that everybody thinks that they know how to determine a fake story from a real story. And I knew for a fact these people don't know that in a lot of cases. I could see it. I'd seen the stuff they'd shared. Um, but they all believe that they can do that. And a lot of it's because they're relying on search engines to check things out. And any of you who know anything about algorithms and how Google works, Google is created to give you what you want to see, depending on the search that you put in. The words that you use in search is going to give you what you want. You can find literally anything that you want to know on Google. And if you use certain keywords versus others, it's going to just back up your way of seeing things and not necessarily the way that it actually is um, in any kind of wide view. Because it's there to serve what you want to see, not necessarily some universal, like, one true story. And in all of this, I'd say that the, the main thing I figured out was that, like, I'd started talking to them about disinformation. Like, that's why I talked to them. But their main issue was really a lack of connection like a lack of connection with the media, a lack of connection with communities. A lot of these people are very lonely, very isolated. Uh, they're part of groups that like, are really insular to themselves, so they only really have the people who are exactly like them. And that, that lack of connection is a real problem, and it's something that goes even beyond media. That's the stuff that we could really think about with that. So all of this comes back to community engagement, because if you're in any communications job, any of them, your job is community engagement, no matter what your role is. And what I mean by that is you've got to be answering certain questions with the work that you do every day. You have to think, who is this for? What is this work I'm doing for? Who is the audience for this? Why, like, what's the purpose for this? You know, what problem am I solving? What need am I meeting with the work that I'm doing? 
Uh, those two things together, like if you don't have an answer to that and what you're doing with your time every day, like you really got to question what kind of job you're in. Uh, but also like what, how you even set your priorities for what you're doing. And you know, is what I'm doing useful for somebody? And that you know, is universal across information world and across any kind of communication, but also again, product development. Is this something that's useful to somebody else? And maybe the most important thing is how do I even know that? Like how do I measure, how do I talk to people to find out if what I'm doing is important and what I'm doing is helping them? Because ultimately, like, your time is gonna be wasted if, if you're not thinking about this sort of stuff every day. So, and kind of a few like last things before we really open up to questions that are, I think, sort of universal things to know, whether you're going into journalism or not, I think they're really great, um, great things that have helped me in my career. So for one, if you're going into journalism, there actually isn't such a thing as a traditional journalism path anymore. Like, I, it's kind of a joke for me to be like, yeah, I have a non-traditional journalism job, but like literally everyone does. Traditional journalism jobs stopped existing 20 years ago. Um, and like they only exist in movies and like in textbooks. They're not really, there isn't really a, a pure field anymore. Even my husband, who's a reporter, his job is not at all what he thought it was gonna be when he was in college. It's very different. He does a lot more things than just calling people and quoting them and writing stories. He's got a lot more that goes into his job now than that. So the traditional path, don't even worry about that. And much like I said earlier, career progression, and this is in any field, is it's not gonna be a ladder. It used to be like a ladder, but now it's definitely more like a jungle gym. You're, you're all over the place. And that's the way it's supposed to be. You don't have to worry that you're like doing it wrong if that's how it happens. And no matter what you're doing, and no matter where you are, the community that you serve is gonna be the most important part of what you're doing. And that could be literally a local community, but that could also be an interest community. That could be a, a product-based community. Like you've gotta know who they are. and You've gotta have data on that. You've gotta be talking to them. You've gotta be getting feedback from them. So again, make sure that you're actually doing your job right. Um, a big thing for me, as you kind of, I tried to kind of get to in, in my talk here, is, is really being observant of needs. So like the needs inside of the place where you're working, but also the needs outside. To be like, what can I do to help solve this problem? Because by doing that, that's how you can build the kind of job you wanna do. You can change the kind of things you're spending your time doing, because there's always gonna be things in your job that really suck and that you really don't like doing. And you can minimize those by pitching other things that you do like doing that are really needed that somebody else isn't doing, and then you can give the stuff that you don't like to someone else to go do. And that um, makes it so that you're constantly growing, but it's also gonna keep you excited about the work you're doing. Um, and every day, like that, that's what you really want when you're going to work every day. I mean, money is nice, but also not being bored and not like hating what you're doing. And a thing that I don't think I can stress enough, especially as you're leaving university and you're getting out in the world and doing it starting when you're here, is building and maintaining your relationships. And that's not only building relationships with the people who can like help you right now. Like it's great to build relationships with mentors, with people that you admire, but the relationships you form here in school, of other people who are getting into your field, um, later on, the people who are gonna be below you on the totem pole or above you on the totem line next to you, those relationships are going to be what's gonna propel your career forward. I've been laid off three times. I've been a part of three startups that did not work out. And that kind of situation can be devastating if you don't have a network of people 
who are there to lift you up and who can help get you connections, get you back into the game. And that doesn't just happen because like you're a nice person. Though I'd like to think I'm a nice person, but like it's because I'm also giving to them all the time too. You know, when they need lifted up, you're there to do that. When someone needs a favor, you're gonna help them out with that. And like that kind of stuff starts like now. Like I can't tell you how often I've relied on the people I met when I was in university and even now, as they're all out in the field, those connections, if I was like a real jerk to them, like there's no way they would want to help me out. And uh, we've been able to lean on each other and rely on each other. And that's exactly the kind of feeling you should have in the field. It's easy to think of everything like super competitively, but even the people you compete with, you want to build a relationship there because that's going to be really helpful at other parts of your career, for sure. So. I want to leave lots of time for questions, and I'm hoping that we can get them, and maybe you can okay. see, seed the waters a little bit there, too. <laughs> sure. Um, so, um, anyone immediately have a question you want to ask? No, it's a huge room. It's so intimidating. Okay. Anyone immediately? Okay, I'll start. I'm going to start. Okay. So, um, it seems like you're saying like, it's normally the day where I think that, you know, because everyone has to multitask, and I would say in broadcast and print, I mean, even in things that are like magazines where you might have to publish, like the main print story might be published in two weeks, but you're supposed to be producing something every day if you're on a beat. And it can take away from the quality of something if you're not really disciplined about that time. Again, it kind of goes back to that technology overload. It's really easy to just spend all day on Twitter. And you can see which reporters do that. If you pay attention to like journalist Twitter, which I mean, we might as well just call it Twitter because like, I feel like most of Twitter is journalists talking to each other. Like, they are, you can tell they're just like sitting on there all day and you just wonder like, what else are these people doing? Like, how do they have time to do anything else? Uh, but the journalists who use social media really wisely are using that as not only a conduit with their readers and their community to get feedback on their work, to find out what they're missing, um, you know, who else they should be talking to, whatever stories are happening out there, but also it's telling those mini stories in between the big stories that if you're using it for that and not just to kind of just be out there being social, expanding your brand, which is important, but you can devote way too much time to that. But if you're using it like for the purposes of reporting and for the purposes of connecting with the community and making your work better, it won't be a time suck that takes away from the quality of things. Thanks, guys.